Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Contact Lost, the Polish podcast about Warhammer 40k competitive scene in Poland and abroad. I am your host, Tweek, and with me today, I have two completely unexpected guests who will talk with me about the recent tournament that took place in the land down under in Australia. So we're going to talk about Brisbane GT. And to talk about that today, I brought in Edward, an up-and-coming author from AdaptiveSubroutinesGaming.com, so a portal about Warhammer 40k competitive scene that I found accidentally on Reddit. But the moment I started reading, I fell in love with it. Hi, Edward. Good afternoon to me here. Um, I'm uh, in the United States, so very different time zone than you all. But uh, yeah, I recently started the website AdaptiveSubroutines.com. I'm doing sort of a long-form written analysis of uh, 40K and the competitive scene in general. Um, I literally started it just this month. Um, very, very new. We are uh, got maybe what, not even a dozen articles out yet, but so far it's been very well received. I'm very excited about it, and uh, especially this last weekend, I uh, wrote up kind of a preview and a uh, after the fact of the Brisbane 40k GT that happened over in Australia, and uh, got a lot of attention, got a lot of positive feedback from people all over the place, and. Uh, yeah, so I'm excited to keep going with that and excited to uh, do this with you guys today. Great. So AdaptiveSubroutinesGaming.com is uh, the website. And I found you completely by accident uh, browsing Reddit. Somebody just linked your article, and but we will get to that in a moment. Before that, uh, I want to introduce our second guest with us today. From Australia, we have one of the organizers of Brisbane GT. Please welcome Denise from the Normal Blokes podcast. Hey guys, good morning from Australia on the other side of the world. It's uh, <laughs> lovely to be on. Um, I've never been on a European podcast before, so I'm feeling pretty special. This is great. Um, but yeah, I mean, we um, ran the Brisbane GT. Um, I'm part of the Normal Blokes. Um, we're a podcast dedicated to improving the competitive 40K experience. Um, we put our content every few weeks. We've been creating content for a couple of years now, um, basically covering both the uh, international and you know local competitive scene. And uh, we work a lot of building players up in our area as well. Um, we run some 40K classes for newer players. We try to run up small events for newer players starting you know quite recently. So yeah, it's good to it's good to have a bit more exposure and it's good to be talking with you guys. Yeah, fantastic. And, and you really did a very good job uh, organizing that event. So um, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, people from Poland who listen to this, but also people from other countries can get some sort of inspiration, firstly, to organize their own events. So we will talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And then also some inspiration for list building, because you had, what, like 40, more than 40 players or 40 yeah. players with various players, lists, yeah. right? Yeah. So that, yeah, that was, was awesome. Quite a turnout. So, okay, but b before we get to the event itself, uh, Edward, you said that you you that your website is fairly new, actually very new. I checked the archive, I, I went through the articles, and basically there is like a month of content maybe there. What made you create 
website. Is it the beginning of the ninth edition, or um, you know, have you been a long-term fan, or are you a pro player and you wanted to share your knowledge with other people? What what was the 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 reason for that? Well, I wish I could say I was a pro player, but uh, I don't think I can go quite that far yet. But uh, basically. Um, where I live in Michigan, um, I, I don't have a particularly competitive meta. Um, we have one big GT, the Michigan GT that usually happens yearly and, uh, some smaller ones that'll happen on the, um, east side of the state near Detroit. Um, I myself only started playing 40 K in eighth edition, um, years and years and years ago. Um, I got into fantasy battle when that was a thing yet. Um, even before Sigmar in my teens, um, kind of stuck with the hobby, more of just painting and collecting without anybody to really play with, uh, throughout that time. And, um, a new LGS was kind of opened up near me, near me. And I started hanging out in there a little bit and it was, it was mostly a 40 K crowd. So I got into that. Um, but I've always been competitive at different types of games. I was in my teens a magic player and played another card game called Legend of the Five Rings that I was um, quite good at. And it eventually just led into the miniature side of the hobby for me as well. Um, but as the eighth edition went on, um, my kind of skill set and knowledge and kind of thirst for more knowledge for the game kind of outpaced uh, everyone else in my local meta. So. Um, as ninth edition rolled around, I found that a lot of my thoughts and um, insights, such as they are, um, were a little bit long form for your average discussion on Facebook or Reddit. And um, we all know how the comment sections on places like those can yeah. be anyway. So I was like, hey, let's just uh, do this. And because uh, there's other, I mean, there's Goonhammer um, in the States, there's Grimdark Filthy Casuals. Um, there's a few other places that are kind of doing long form written. Um, and I, I was like, I, I can do that. And just even if it's just an archive for me to kind of organize my thoughts and look back on and maybe help some of the guys locally, um, they can, you know, read it and maybe get some insights into the list I'm playing, um, how to play against them. And uh, yeah, come to find out, um, apparently some of my insights uh were worth something to somebody because it's growing a bit faster than I thought. Um, doing yeah, the were, best I can yeah. right now with just me and one man show doing it yeah. by myself at the moment. But so you know, I I uh, as I said, I found your your write ups and your articles by accident, sort of. But to be perfectly honest, I'm definitely going to stick to it because. Uh, the insights that you provide and the knowledge that you have is really, really impressive. So, uh, guys, if I mean our listeners, if you if you want really insightful write-ups about tournaments, but also about the latest releases and so on, you make sure that you hit uh, adaptivesubroutinesgaming.com because the website, you know, it's it's uh, already amazing, and I don't even know what to say. I, you know, where it's going to go. Uh, but give it give it a chance, help it grow. Um, so yeah, so, Appreciate so that. That, thank you. So that's why we have Edward. Now, Denise, um, I'm a big fan. As I said, uh, the Normal Blogs podcast has almost seventy episodes, I think, um, by yes. now. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I can tell you that I've listened probably to the majority of them, if not all. But to the majority of people who listen to us now, 
in Poland especially, your name probably doesn't ring a bell. And someone might think, why the hell should I care about Australian meta? It's like the other end of the world. So, yeah, why should people be interested in Australian meta? I mean, is there anything special about Australia and the way you play the game? Yeah, well, uh, first off, thank you, because uh, we haven't heard of many people outside of Australia listening to us, so, so that's uh, really great to hear, Tom. <laughs> really great to hear that we've got some My passionate listeners uh, in Europe. But uh, look, I mean, Australia is really interesting. Um, if you look at a country like America and how 40K is played in America, there are many little zones of, I guess, I like to call them ponds, little ponds of 40K being played everywhere. And there's many states in America, obviously, many regions, many, um, you know, metas, if you call it that. And in all those little metas, there are good players. And those good players will naturally rise to the top and you get a good amount of diversity in terms of lists and things like that. The thing with Australia is we have a handful of states and territories, but we really only have five capital cities that play 40K. And out of those five, there's three that are heavily, essentially three that are heavily competitive. And the whole Australian WTC team comes from these three spots. So it's kind of like if every RTT that you rocked up to, you had a Nanavadi, a Siegler, a Lennon, and a Perry. Like it's it's like if you had those top players going to every RTT. Because every RTT we go to, we have Eric Lathuris, we have Hayden Walduck, we have Liam Hackett, we have Josh McGowan, we have Dan Savage. Like those guys are always there. And that is really interesting for the meta because you can bring a list, you know, that's um, quite good in an American meta and does quite well, um, like in an RTT or in a GT. And it's interesting because the player skill that we have and the player difference of skill we have between a mid-table player and one of those top guys is a lot. And they don't tend to gravitate towards these lists that are just, um, you know, meta stomping and we hear about on the internet. They'll make something totally left to field that plays the mission really well, that cuts across these top meta lists that we're seeing online. So I really like what's going on in Australia because it, it almost gives us a bit of an insight into what other people can do to beat these top lists. Like we look at just an example, salamanders or space marines in general, you know. Um, we had a couple of, you know, Adeptus Astartes lists, but a lot of players, even the top players, um, aside from Hayden Waldock, and I'm allowed to give him give him a bit of shade because he's my good mate. Um, a, a lot of a lot of the top players moved away from that marine list because they thought there were there was there's more potential in other things. Like you see Eric and, and Steve Wade, another one of the local players playing, you know, horde tyranids, which is unheard of in ninth. Um, you're seeing Josh McGowan doing really well on Admech, ending up on the top table with a, with what looks like a hodgepodge Admech list, but it's actually in, insanely brutal. And then you have all out of, even with Marines, you've got Hayden Waldock's weird Imperial Fist list that doesn't quite look right on paper, but has some pretty good tabling power. Then you got Liam Hackett on guard, like who's playing Horde guard at the moment. So um, you know we've got these good players gravitating towards these really interesting niches, and I think that creates a really good point of conversation. Um, and I also think, um, I think we were talking a bit about this before the show when, when Tom, you were saying that a lot of um, stuff in Poland is geared towards WTC and ETC. And it's starting to be like that in Australia, where a lot of the players are seeing things like WTC as like the pinnacle goal, and they want to really push their faction and do really well. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's why I find what's going on in Australia really interesting, because um, it's fresh. Yeah, so I think people in Poland can very much relate to what you've just said in that. Okay. Um, you know, the Polish 
national team or people who aspire to the Polish national team, they tend to experiment a lot. So uh, they tend to uh, either test with armies that are considered underdogs or just pure crap. Like last week, I told Edward that before you joined the the call, that uh, I played at an overnight tournament last Saturday. And one of the top Polish players, if not the top Polish player, came to play as well. And he brought, I was sure, I knew he was coming, but I was sure he would come with a chaos list. But instead, he came with GSC, which we all know where GSC is right now. But he came to the tournament and he basically proved that it's all about the wizard and not about the wand. Because, uh, (laughs) you know... He he basically rocked the tournament. It was a, a three-round RTT. He demolished his opponents, me as well. Uh, he played the first game against my Grey Knights, and he just, you know, I, I lost like 80 to 10 or something like that. Oh goodness, um, yeah. So, yeah, so he, he demonstrated that um, picking an army is, is a secondary thing, but you just have to have skill. And when you have that, then, uh, you know, any tool, will work for you. And he told me that he didn't bring chaos because uh, the selecting committee for the Polish national team actually uh, asked him to to practice with something that is an underdog. So yeah, so so, so, uh, that's exactly what I think that that's exactly what what the Australians do as well. Now, uh, Edward, tell me this. The American scene is probably the most dominant in that as, as I said earlier, you know, all the podcasts are usually American, maybe from the UK, but generally the American. All the biggest players that you hear about are American as well. But then the Americans go to, for example, the ETC, or now the WTC, and they need to play a completely different game. Do you think that it's difficult for them to adapt to, um, to those new standards, to playing cards instead of secondary missions and so on? I definitely think it can. Um, and kind of what you guys are just alluding to in your countries where people kind of bring different stuff and practice for that event. Um, here, it tends to be kind of more about um, A, our national teams generally run and selected by a pretty small group of guys among a big player base, right? So that makes a difference. I, I, I'm not sure that a lot of players really feel that same aspiration to be in those larger mm-hmm. country represented team events. But then the ITC is also such a big thing here that getting best in faction in a, in a specific faction or something like that's a much bigger deal. Um, and it's more about just the winning that event is for a lot of people more prestigious. Like um, we have a, major coming up this weekend the iron halo gt in oklahoma and i've been working on a write-up for that a preview similar to what i did for brisbane and there's currently 115 116 lists registered and 45 percent of them are space marines there's 51 space marine armies at at this event so it's kind of And I've been like kind of internalizing, thinking about how I'm going to write this. Why is it that we have a month full of results from Europe, from Australia, where not only did Space Marines not necessarily do well, they didn't podium, they weren't really that represented. They were closer to like a 25% 
representation of the armies to you get a bunch of Americans together and we're, you know, rocking <laughs> almost 50% space Marines. And, and I think it has more to do with, like you guys were saying, uh, the ETC team thing isn't necessarily an option for everybody. Um, and kind of that instant gratification of, you know, I won this major, I did well at this event. So um, I'm not necessarily going to focus on, you know, doing well with my Necrons right now. I'm going to take Space Marines that I feel like give me the best chance to win. Right. So I'll, I'll use what you said about, you know, the, 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 the GT that is, is uh, going to happen soon. To sort of segue into our main topic, so the the GT that uh, that we wanted to talk about, the Brisbane GT. I, from what I've heard, the the event was awesome. Uh, it went really well. As I said, amazing turnout, forty plus players. But Denise, what challenges do you need to face as an organizer of an event like that? Um, I I think anyone that's like run a event understands some of the difficulties that are always associated with any event. Um, this could be as simple as, you know, getting your players to, you know, sign up and pay, getting your players to put lists in, sorting out rules issues. Like that's a, that's a commonality with any tournament you run in any, any game. But I think one of the biggest things we had to work around was, I guess, the COVID restrictions um, in our country. Now, we're, we're pretty lucky in Australia where we live in Queensland, in Brisbane, where, um, the case numbers are very low. We're allowed to be essentially almost normal at this stage. Like we're very, very blessed and lucky to to have that. Um, but we still had to work around, you know, minimum number. Oh, sorry, maximum numbers in in rooms and and keeping people safe and having hand hygiene and stuff and having players sign in. And we had to make sure that was getting done. And that just adds a, another little layer onto everything else going on. So we found that a little bit of a challenge, but we got it done in the end. Um, we were really, really pleased that every single player got their list in on time, which was lovely, <laughs> which was glorious. Um, but one of the trickiest things we had to actually organize was making sure all those lists were legal. Um, you know, we had a number of lists that we had to adjust and correct or ask players to adjust and correct, which is okay. You know, some, sometimes we make mistakes. Um, but the, and the big thing on the day that um, funneled us around a bit was, was making sure the stream was going okay. If anyone was watching the Art of War down under stream, we had a few little hiccups, but, um, Adam and Diff at Down Under, um, Ottawa Down Under, did a really good job uh, to, to carry that for us. So, yeah, there's always going to be little challenges, but um, I think the, the main thing with running a, an event for anyone who wants to run an event is is don't sweat the little stuff. Um, it's going to be irritating at stages, but you're there for the players. You're there to have a good weekend with everyone. And, and if you remember that, then the event will get done just fine. Great. So tell me this, because I, I find it interesting that in Australia, you have your own app, right? For lists, for pairings, for all that jazz, for scores. Yes. Uh, so down under pairings, uh, I know that you know from like LDO coverages and and by following the the American scene, I know that they have BCP, so Best Coast mm -hmm. pairings. And yep. then in Europe, we transitioned, I would say, in the last year uh, or at the end of the eighth edition to Tourney Keeper. So. Mm -hmm you know what made you guys come up with your own application like uh, down under pairings i heard and this is gossip but i heard that it's better than bcp so <laughs> in what 
Well, we're always going to say what we make is better, mate. We're Australian. But um, look, it's a non-issue now because down under pairings and BCP are essentially the same thing now. But um, but yeah, we, we started down under pairings. Uh, well, I'm not going to say anything with we because I, I didn't do it. Joshua Diffie from down under pairings created down under pairings a number of years ago um, as more of a, um, a web-based um, option to BCP because a lot of people were having trouble at the time getting BCP going on their phone. Um, we I love down under pairings. Um, it's awesome because any phone with internet connection you can load it up and you can you know enter results and things really simply um it's got a really simple interface for lists you can load up all the lists in one big document print it out and you're done um and the coolest thing that dup had i guess before um things like stats 40k stats and stuff was out is dup had its own stats base where if you look at a tournament and you guys probably saw this at the brisbane gt you open up the tournament you open up the list and you can see a breakdown of all the factions um, in like a little pie graph and you can really look at that. On top of that, there's individual player statistics. So if you go onto my subpar profile on, on, on DUP, um, you'll see my win-loss, you'll see my best performing factions, you'll see the factions I perform best against, you'll see my ELO rating, which is kind of like a ranking, you'll see my win streak, you'll see the secondaries I pick the most, and you'll see my results at my most recent events and the best events I've attended. So the, the background data that um, Down Under Pairings had was just phenomenal, um, absolutely phenomenal. Um, yeah. But then, uh, Edward, when, when I guess that when if you follow the American scene, you, you also need to use BCP because that's the go-to app in the States. Am I correct? Is that what you do? Yeah, most of our tournaments are loaded up on BCP, and that's kind of our default for following along or uh, if you're running an event. Um, most organizers are going to do it through BCP because it's, you know, what we have. All right. And then in BCP, can you also see all those stats that Denise talked about? Or is it just for lists and pairings and scores? Just list pairings and round results um, is what we can see right now. Um, then generally, I guess it creates work for 40K stats, right? Because <laughs> they get yep. to go through. They they get to go through and parse all that information into uh, something you know that they have on their website and their podcast whenever they can get going again. But uh, yeah. Uh, in fact, I actually question for Denise. Really, uh, I noticed looking at the games and stuff now, and perhaps maybe I just missed it in the compiled information for Down Under. Um, mm -hmm. I noticed tracking round by round. Um, you could see who went first in each game this time. Yeah. Is that going to start getting compiled as a, you know, kind of quick you can see percentages for first turn win loss? So, yeah, one of the good things about DUP, and, and I see it as a good thing, so it might annoy some people, but when you finish your game, you don't just enter your score in. You enter who went first, how many turns you did, what the primary was, what each secondary was, and how much each player scored in that. Um, you tick if a player conceded or got tabled. So there's a fair bit of information that goes into your score, which is nice because at the end of the tournament, the organizers and the database has a lot of information to go with. So... Um, yeah, there'll definitely be with more tournaments out, a lot more statistics available on, you know, first win percentage and things like that. Um, 
but we've actually done episodes on our podcast in the past where we've looked at all the data on DUP and looked at secondaries and how well they're going and different factions against each faction and things like that. So um, I, I see a real benefit in, in all that data and the more tournaments on DUP to have that data, the better. So yeah, it, it'll be really good to see. I think um, I think Edward in, in let's say like three or four months when a lot more tournaments are starting to ramp up, um, you know, what the data really is. And now before Brisbane GT actually happened, you recorded an episode of the normal blokes where you pretty much informed all the listeners what the pairings were, what the lists that people brought were. Is that common practice? Is that something that you that you generally do in Australia, that you uh, basically announce everything before the tournament and people can prepare for their, their games or something like that? Not at all, actually. It's the first time we tried it. Um, and I've heard on other podcasts, I think it was Caledonian Deathwatch, when they used to do it for some of their events where they did live pairings on their podcast. And I thought, wow, um, why don't I try this with, with our local crew? Because number one, you know, it's, it's entertaining for people to listen to. But but number two, you know, it puts our local players up um, for everyone to see. And, and that exposure is really what we want for our community. So, um, yeah, we thought it'd be a great idea. We were scared that it might... Um, that it might be not be well received um, in that, you know, you have to listen to the podcast to hear your pairings, but we released it on Down Under Pairings in conjunction with releasing the show, so everyone had access to it. Um, and it was really, really well received. Like, a lot of players loved it. Um, I, I had a good time recording it with the guys because we threw a bit of banter about who would do well. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely something we want to look at going forward because, it you know, it, it kind of projects your local players into the forefront of the scene, which is kind of nice to do to, to the people around you that are doing well. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into the you know nitty gritty of the tournament itself. Uh, and th the first question about that, uh, Edward, I think I'll, I'll address that to you. Um, you know, there not not many events are happening nowadays. The meta is still uh, in the making, so to say. So when you were doing the write up about the um, the tournament. Were there any lists that immediately caught your attention? Was there anything that perhaps came as a surprise or um, something that you haven't seen before? I mean, I think the first thing that caught my eye when I became aware of the event and looked at the list was um, the sheer diversity. I mean, to see that many different factions and sub-factions represented among 40 players, I thought was just awesome because... Like I say here, you don't always see that. Um, but then taking a peek through all the lists individually, um, obviously in the article I, I touched on Eric's and Liam's list just because I'm aware of them as players and hordes are dead, right? So the fact that <laughs> Eric was running, you know, what, what do you have, 170 Gaunts? And Liam's got... 100 plus Valhallen Imperial Guardsmen. It's like, what the yeah. hell is going on here? Um, <laughs> so I thought that was awesome because I've kind of, in to my own personal self this whole time, kind of thought blast weapons were overrated. It wasn't going to kill hordes. I didn't know why everybody was like so overreacting to this. Um, so those two lists in particular, I was um, exceptionally looking forward to seeing how they performed um both because they were hordes and uh be kind of like you were saying tom with the uh 
the Polish player at your event, more more about the magician than the wand, proving that kind of if you're a good player, you can take really anything you want that you're comfortable with and you can do well uh, in ninth edition. Yeah, especially the people are still getting used to uh, the missions, the primaries, the secondaries. You really need to change the mindset and the approach to how you build your lists because it's no longer about just killing your opponents. It's about actually outlasting your opponent on the objectives and so on. So, yeah, the same question, Denise, the same question to you. Uh, was there anything in particular that really caught your attention in the lists? Um apart from maybe Liam's and, and, and Eric's list. Yeah, so um, there's actually a number of players that we were talking with and playing with before the event that were on, you know, these big space frame factions, and they kind of jumped off ship to, to go to something else, like Rory Argent, who's quite a good, um, you know, player in our local scene. He's played for Team Queensland a few times. He's, um, you know, won Men's of Masquerade last year. Um, he was playing Space Marines for a while, and then he suddenly jumped onto Thousand Suns, and it was a brutal list. And I think there's just um, a bit more hidden power than people give credit to to other factions at the moment. Like those, even those horde lists, like Edward said, you know, that fear of the blast weapon and, and things like that. Well, you don't have to expose all 170 or whatever gaunts or all 130 or whatever guardsmen for every turn. Like you can hide them, shoot them forward, hide them, shoot them forward. Half of them can be in reserves, you know, like so. There is still ways to play it if you're up for playing that kind of play style. So I think there are some hidden gems here that um, as the meta kind of evolves, like we said, we haven't had that many tournaments. Um, but as that keeps going, you know, I think we'll see some of these these cool lists pop up. And um, I guess the the crown jewel here is is when the team events start starting up. Um, if we see these lists popping up in team events to fill a specific role, that's when we'll know, you know, it's good or it's, you know, it's really worthwhile. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to see that variation, but I, I love it. Like, it's great. <laughs> yep, same here. So uh, to all the listeners, the lists or the link to, to the lists uh, from the Brisbane GT will be available in the comments. So you can click, you can go through them yourself if you haven't done that already. And we're not going to go through all of them. Uh, I, I guess the most important bit to say about the list is, as Edward mentioned, it, the, the, the variety was great. You had Eldar players uh, that, you know, you, you don't really see that, I think, you don't really see that many Eldar now, especially because of the Space Marine dominance. That was not really the case at Brisbane GT because there was no dominance of, of, of Space Marines, I would say. But Eldar were there, there were Custodes players as well, so really a lot of attention-worthy stuff, I would say. But we're not going to go through all of that list, the, all those lists, because we could sit here all day just talk about that. But maybe let's let's take a closer look at the top three. So let's start with, with the list that took the third place, so Eric's Tyranids. Yes. Um, why do you think he did so well in particular? Was it just the sheer amount of bodies on the table or was it something else? Look, I mean, if anyone's going to play the Gaunt Horde, the Gaunt Carpet, it's going to be the guy that made it popular, right? It's, it's going to be Eric. <laughs> so Eric's played anywhere between 120 to, I think his max number was nearly 300, like 280 Gaunts. Like he's played anywhere in that range in 8th edition. Um, and he's truly a master of, of that board control game. And having threats, you know, the ability to reach out and touch different parts of the boards with the Tyranids um, 
was was big for him in eighth. Um, and also having these pockets of explosive damage um, in terms of characters and bombs was was something he got really good at. And you'll see in games like in CanCon 2019, the final he plays against, um, you know, a plague bearer list, Lee Abbey. Um, you know, his time at ETC, um, you know, he's definitely very good with the Tyranids. But his, um, so his path was actually pretty tricky. Um, <laughs> he had to play against a Salamander's list round one. <laughs> he had to play against uh, a melee Necron list with a with 18 Wraiths and, and nine Scorpex Destroyers round two. So definitely a list that tears him apart. Um, round three, I believe he played Iron Hands. Um, no, round three, he played melee Blood Angels. No, sorry, Iron Hands. Round four, he played Admech, um, Josh McGowan, who came fourth. And round five, he played Melee Blood Angels with three Sang Moms and a Death Company Mom. So he didn't play pushover lists. He played guys that uh, ended up in the top 10, uh, top 15. So um, he definitely knows, I guess, what he's doing with the Tyranids. But one of the things that Eric is really good at is, is not giving opponents a real choice in what they can kill. He'll put certain units in certain places saying, you can kill this if you like, but you can't kill the rest of this. But if you want to kill the rest of this, you're going to have to put yourself out of position and I'm going to capitalize on that. So I actually didn't get a chance to watch a lot of Eric's games, but from the discussions I've seen him having and other people having, you know, that Tyranid list can move. And it's not just in the movement phase that we're all, you know, aware of. It's the fact that they can do like big consolidates in wherever direction they want to go. They can, um, you know, you got Hormagorns that can fly out and if they kill something, you know, you just overrun them across and they're halfway across the bloody board. Um, and all you need is one Gaunt to touch an objective and it's yours. So the ability for that list to take primary away from people and as well as limit people's, you know, access to parts of the board is huge. It's really huge. And, and Eric's the kind of guy that can play that to a, a good level. So yeah, it's, it's really cool to see. Um, there's actually another player, Stephen Wade, who attended the event that ran a similar list that was trying to do the same thing, who's, um, you know, getting his experience up with Tyranids. And there were some games where he really did well and other games where, you know, um, it was a bit hard for him. So Nids are definitely not an easy army to play, um, but I think under the right um, pilot, they can be really good. Yeah, especially with, um, you know, smaller tables and an army like that, that just oh, yeah. sluts the tables really is something to be reckoned with. I mean, I'm looking at the list now, so yeah, Thermogans, 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 Hormogans, Hormogans, Old One-Eye, Thermogans, 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 Three Venom Throats, <laughs> One Lictor, and then also mixed in, there is a, a Gene Stealer Cow Patrol with Twisted Helix. Yes. So, yeah. so yeah, so some some nice tools yeah. you know, to deal with heavy, heavy hitters from the opponent's side. Yeah, because you look at all the gaunts and like, there's no true. <laughs> um, we have a joke here because one of the one of the um, reviews on Liam Hackett's list a while ago was, "Where's the punch?" That <laughs> um, with this list, um, you know, there doesn't look like there's much kill power and punch power in the gaunts when there actually is a lot of shots and a lot of attacks over over the whole course of the game. But then you've got all these this explosive damage with things like brood lords, things like old one eye, who's still you know a steamroller. And then you've got all this explosive damage and, you know, a little hand flamer bomb, a little rock saw brick when you need it. The Sanctus with the dagger, who's a real, I'm not going to swear on the podcast, but he's hes a real piece of work. Um, so there's still some tools in that toolbox that Eric can use. Um, the Lict is really cool because he just sneaks out the side for secondaries and stuff, which is kind of nice. Um, so, so, yeah, it's definitely, you know, he's got the tools to manage certain things. And if he plays it well, he can use those to get amazing trades in whoever he's playing against. 
Um, Edward, the, the next question goes to you, um, because in your description of the tournament, you highlighted a couple of valid points about that list. Uh, you mentioned the secondaries that were scored, and you've also mentioned this, um, let's call it strategy, move blocking. So can you delve a little bit more into that? What is that and how can that list excel at it? That was actually probably one of the first things that caught my eye with Eric's list in particular when I looked at it. Um, partially because I build a lot of my list to utilize this as well. Um, but I was thinking in my head as I looked at this, there's going to be a unit of Gaunts that just flies up or this... GSC patrol is going to pop up out of nowhere right in your lines. And great, you might have the firepower even to get through all these gaunts. But if there's a unit of 20 of them or these acolytes two inches in front of you and you're stuck in your deployment zone or probably with a player like Eric whatever part of the board he wants you to be stuck on and he's just overrunning the rest of it I was I just couldn't come up in my head how other people were going to score against it because you're pinned in a section of the board you're not contesting primaries from you know the other hundred gaunts that at this point are wherever he wants them and those broodlords and old one eye are wherever he wants them um, and he could even with that many gaunts funnel your movement towards them if he wanted to i was just thinking the possibilities are endless for what eric's going to be able to do uh to his opponent's armies um he's almost controlling everything um, and not only the move blocking from the stuff that's on the table, but you've got enough bodies on the board at that point. If you're planning on bringing stuff in from reserves or deep strikes, just where are you going to put them? Because <laughs> he's going to have every table edge covered and you're only going to be able to drop stuff in your deployment zone. You're not going to get it anywhere near a primary objective that he doesn't want you to have. Um, I was just thinking, man, I, I wouldn't want to play against it myself. Yeah, so I like the bit that you, where you said that uh, he basically controls everything because he not only controls the table, he controls your mind almost as well in that you, know, you need to be wary of those things that can appear right next to you in your deployment zone. So you need to plan how to take the table, but at the same time, you need to plan how to not let him get on your back. So this list really seems to have everything. Do you know what secondaries he, he, he chose for his games? Um, so in, in a lot of games, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but, um, in a lot of games, the obvious ones look like things like while we stand, we fight, he can keep his big things safe in a lot of situations. Um, he can take engage on all fronts where he needs to putting little units here and there, putting a lictor here and there, putting a GSC unit here and there. Um, because of all the infantry everywhere, he's able to do actions quite well. So secondaries involving actions is quite nice. Um, I'm not 100% sure on what he took, but they're the ones that kind of stand out to me. Um, but like Edward said, that that ability to hold the board is huge. But I think people don't quite focus on the, the custom high fleet traits that he took, um, which gives everything a six-up invo, or, to, or not everything, but every gaunt unit a six-up invo. Um, but on top of that, it's if the model's not within three inches, it can consolidate where it wants. 
And that is a huge amount of power to give a horde army that can already do a lot of movement in the movement phase. And, you know, and then charges can consolidate out if there's nothing nearby, then overrun, you know, it's an incredible amount of movement to give a little tiny gaunt that can touch something and stop it shooting, you know, if it has to fall back to shoot and stuff like that. So there's an incredible amount of ability to shut things down and, and like Edward said, just take the board with that kind of movement. Especially that, and I think many people have said that already, but you probably win this game in the movement phase. So if you can, you know, move a lot and then you can yeah. use also other phases of the game to yeah. move even more, uh, you're going to win. <laughs> yeah, when the fact that an army can get about 20 inches of movement in the fight phase is phenomenal. <laughs> it's it's Mental, incredible. I would say. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, when I look at that army and, you know, again, the sheer amount of bodies on the table, I think that even Domination would be a viable secondary to pick just because it's very difficult to shift that amount of, of models from the table. Like, I've, I, you know, I play Grey Knights, and I would say that I have uh, a lot of shooting. L looking at that list, I don't think I have enough shooting to, to, to you know, to, to get rid of thing. all those models. Like, if, if you look at an army like Grey Knights, Grey Knights could probably pick up all the gaunts in about three turns um, with the whole army shooting. But the, the key is... at that for, point. Yeah, like... Um, you know, it's 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 important to know that to play this kind of army, well, Eric can't really stretch out beyond what he needs to. He needs to play the game where he's he's holding holding objectives as he needs. But if he actually overcommits, those gaunts can die really quickly. And let's say like a unit of twenty five gaunts or even a unit of ten hormone gaunts is probably more valuable to him at a certain point in the game to stop his opponent scoring. Let's say like a turn three, turn four, than it is turn one. So there'll be times where Eric won't be sticking his head out with his whole army. He'll just be putting out what he needs to do something. So your opponent can only kill a certain thing. And um, I've had the uh, the pleasure of playing Eric uh, with the Gaunts on some practice games where I'd brought like, you know, a very tooled army to kill the Gaunts. And I found myself in situations where, wow, I can only reach out and kill 30 Gaunts. I can get the others, but I'm going to have to dive my whole army forward and that's going to lose me the game. So um, if he puts that that situation on the tabletop, then it gets really hard for even a dedicated horde-killing army to go through all the Gaunts. Correct. All right, so uh, that was Eric's list. Now, yeah. second place... Hayden Waldock, Imperial Fist successor chapter. Um, what was in the list and why was it so successful? Uh, Edward, do you want to take it? I actually don't have the list up right now. I'm popping it up now. Oh, perfect. Sorry, I'm throwing you under the bus here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries. I can, I can start because I, oh, I actually no, have I the list. Oh, okay, or if you do, go on. Go on. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, okay. So um, Hayden is a good mate of mine. Um, Hayden is described as probably the loosest Aussie bloke. He's a, he's a good amount of fun. Um, if you watched the ETC final round stream against England last year, Hayden's playing Manny Chima on the stream, and it's a great game. Um, but he's a very good player. You know, he's a, he's a household name for 40K players in Brisbane because of all the podiums he's been in. And, um, yeah, it's good to have him playing for the normal blokes. But, um, yeah, Hayden's got an Imperial Fist successor, which is really interesting. Um, he doesn't have Exploding Sixes. He's got Master Artisans and Stealthy. So reroll and uh, counting as in cover, which is which is really nice for his list. Um, it's very mech-heavy, but it's got some other tools. It's got uh, a super... Um, a super tech marine. He's got a, a smash captain on bike. He's paid points uh, for a Calidus assassin, which we'll, I'll cover in a moment. 
He's got some intercessors. Um, he's got two Invictor Warsuits. He's got a Grav Pod and a Thunderfire Cannon. He's got Storm Talons, and he's got two Impulses, not with Shield Domes, but with the Sky Talon. And this, this list is really interesting in the sense that it doesn't look like much, but the actual ability for this list to reach out is huge. So you've got these Invictors that deploy mid-board that can push forward. It's got uh, the planes, obviously, that can do things. Um, and the firepower from the Impulses is, is pretty solid. But on top of that, all these vehicles getting cover is really, really nice for Hayden. Um, just because they start they start with two ups. Um, so on top of, oh, sorry, I've missed out. He's got two units of eradicators as well. So, you know, they're, they're fire. They're not that important. No, no, they're not that important, mate. They're, they're bad, you know. They're, they're not good units. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the amount of firepower that Hayden can bring down is phenomenal. So round one, Hayden played Liam Hackett's guard. And the game was over in two turns. Like Hayden just moved forward, killed all the guardsmen, killed all the tanks, done. Um, so the Imperial Fist Super Doctrine for plus one damage really gets mileage on a lot of these units. You know, when you've got your, your Storm Talons, which are pretty much a flying Avenger Gatling cannon at that stage, plus some missiles, um, you know, it's like you've got the firepower of two knights and you can position them wherever you want. So you can just fly them up to stuff and blow it up. Um, on top of that, Eradicators as Imperial Fists is actually silly. <laughs> um, the the amount of damage you can you can put down on them. Um, he's got the the fact that he's brought one Thunderfire really helps that Horde matchup because in certain games he can just double tap that all day and just start clearing Hordes. Um, and the ability for that Grav Pod to come in turn one is huge. Like I don't think people are realizing what a turn one redeploy or drop can do because. There were games like his game against Dan Savage round four where he didn't need the Grav Pod. So all he did was drop it in Dan's backfield and deploy Scramblers <laughs> and then move the move the uh, Devastators into the midfield a few turns later, deploy Scramblers again. So, um, you know, there's stuff you can do with that Grav Pod in, even in games where you don't need it. Um, and on top of that, the, the ability for this list, if you visualize how it looks with those Impulses, those Invictors, um, the Storm Talons and the Pod, it can flood the entire board very quickly and round five um hayden was was playing luke pierce who's another one of our normal blokes hosts luke was four and oh with gray knights he was feeling really good about himself and uh ran into hayden Waldock. we call him duck um but duck went first flooded the board and luke could only bring his nemesis red knights in in like a four inch by six inch pocket in his own deployment zone because the board was just full um so yeah, the things this list can do are really cool, and I think there's a lot of hidden power in it. And just like Edward had said, when you look at it, there's nothing too exciting, nothing too extravagant. But uh, with a good pilot, it's awesome. Yeah, it does seem like a, a complete threat overload. Like there is yeah. li literally everything in that list is killy. But yeah. <laughs> uh, I was surprised to see the flyers because it, it looks very, you know, like I would say eighth edition. Or even seventh edition stuff, mm. not 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 something that you see in in ninth very much. As I said, the, the meta is is still you know shaping or in the making. Yeah. But I can't say that I've seen any flyers since the beginning of ninth in Poland. I don't know how about mm. you know other regions, but I own a Storm Raven. I just thought it was too expensive, and I have a Storm Talon, which I thought, yeah, that's going to go down for turn one. <laughs> yeah. So I'm. Um, even more surprised that that you know he yeah. brought two 
Well, here's the thing. Like, who's going to shoot the Storm Talon when there's two Invicta Warsuits on the midfield objectives that you're trying to get to turn one? Yeah. And if they're running the objectives, it's, oh, well, I guess I need to kill them. I guess I can't really shoot the Storm Talons. And then the Talons run you over. And then even the shooting from the Impulses is no joke. And it can actually threaten you pretty hard. So, um, yeah, you're 100% right. This is a big threat overload list. And where we see Eric as one of the the better, you know, defensive reactive players in our meta, Hayden's the opposite. He's one of the best, you know, aggressive proactive players in our meta. And it's really cool when we see them play because it's totally different. But, um, but yeah, Hayden, this is right up his alley. Um, on top of that, the Kalidus, I will add, um, there are certain armies that can actually tank the damage from this list fairly well, like non-vehicle tough armies, like infantry-based Death Guard, infantry-based Custodes. And the Kalidus is a nice addition because it just makes you think about the CP you want to spend turn one to protect yourself from this big alpha. Like when that army hits you in Devastator Doctrine, the Custodes are going to want to ignore Neg 1 or 2 AP, or they're going to want to Neg the Strength, or they're going to want to Transhuman. Yeah, The Kalidus just makes that a bit harder for you to do. You're going to want to CP a key armor save. The Kalidus makes that a bit harder for you to do. You're going to want to, you know, spend CP to shoot on death in some armies. The Kalidus makes that choice a bit harder. So I really, really like the addition of the Assassin in this list. Yeah, especially that at the end of the day, it's an actual Assassin. So she can drop yeah. <laughs> very close and she can actually take down, you know, an important character or, or, or a warlord or whatnot. So, yeah, again, threat overload uh, all over the place. Uh, oh, yeah. Edward, you said that it seems that this army can really play the mission well. You said that in your in your article. Um, what did you mean by that? Like, uh, or what exactly did you mean by that? Do you know perhaps what missions that army could play well? Really, a, a lot of it comes down to the same kind of core concepts at Eric's list. Um, when you're looking at those two war suits, the two flyers, um, three impulsors, you're getting a lot in their face early and you can really control movement again. And I think it just goes to show even more how important um, the move blocking and kind of controlling um, people's movement can be, especially with these missions and the focus on the primary. Um, then Denise touched on again, that, that one thunder fire, um, so many uses um, first turn being able to take out nerglings with two damage, or being able to slow down the death company or whatever gaunts or gene stealers might be out there or white scars um, trying to move in advance or harlequins. Just so much little tech in that piece um, to help with the missions. Uh, and then you've obviously got uh, the eradicators and the grav pod that can, I mean, they do what eradicators and grav pods do. Um, and like Denise said there, he even gets a little bit more kind of outside the box use out of that grav pod, which is really cool because most people, I mean, myself included, really, like when you look at the list, you think of Imperial Fists as a one-trick pony. You think of a grav pod as a one-trick pony. Um, this list does a lot of very sneaky things that you're not really expecting it to do. Um, which is why I'm really not surprised that it did well, because uh, I feel like it could catch a lot of people off guard. Yeah, definitely. I think that especially the, the you know the, the Thunderfire Cannon, it's the thing of my nightmares, really. 
back in the day when I used <laughs> to play orcs, that's one of the things that actually stopped me from playing orcs because uh, just yeah, that double tapping or you know tapping uh, two units of uh, of boys with tremor shells uh, completely like invalidating them uh, for a couple of rounds. That was a nightmare, literal nightmare. And then yeah, uh, this list has so many other cool things to use. So yeah, threat overload. All right, so I think we 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 covered the well Hayden's list pretty well. So moving on to Dan Savage and yeah. his first place list. I think oh, this a is ton gross. Of the, yeah, the, a ton of of things could be said. You guys about think that it's list. gross? I had to play him, mate. <laughs> so yeah, give us your account of what it's like to be smashed yeah. by. <laughs> so first off props to dan you know he's been um working hard recently he's part of our in australia we have like a mini wtc it's called the australian team championships or atc and each state selects a team and once a year we um we play each other and the state i'm in queensland has has won five out of sorry four out of the last five years um and we've had a pretty strong team and dan made himself onto the team at the end of last year so it's really awesome to see that dan's you know picking up podiums he won another event a couple of weeks ago so and and this list is really nasty it's really really nasty and i love it so it's it's essentially got up i won't go through the whole list i'll go through the main parts it's got um the unkillable lord of change um it's it's a demons list pure chaos demons um unkillable lord of change with the impossible robe three up invo the neg one damage warlord trait and the uh, aura immutability when he rolls a six up feel no pain um he regains a wound which is awesome um he's got the uh great unclean one with the bell um with the four up feel no pain he's got uh two units of five and i think one unit of eight beasts of nurgle um so the play behind that is the the bell can bring back beasts which is amazing um he's got the snail so he's got hordy who makes a beast hit on threes um and also is a steamroller himself he's got some nurglings he's got a bloodletter bomb and he's got a plague bearer unit and he's got a, a little unit of um four flamers of zinch as well um so you know really cool really cool list for um just dominating the board like you, you look at it and those beasts being a core they're not um you know they're not obsec obviously but chewing through those beasts is ridiculously hard i think i only killed about four or five max of the beasts i don't think i killed any more than that maybe, maybe like three you know um on top of that the the ability for this list like once it's somewhere i, I can't really think of an army that can shift it at the moment like when you miasma that unit of beasts they're what like toughness five like five or six wounds i think um with the feel no pain with an invo they can heal you know they want to hit the beast can heroic so you don't really want to jump in and steal an objective off him and um you know he has a stratagem for plus one to wound and mortal wounds on sixes so the army i was playing with some context uh, as custodes and i was playing him on battle lines which is hammer and anvil four objectives um and he threw his lord of change out and i was like cool i'm gonna put eight alaris into the lord of change Ada Laris did like five wounds to it <laughs> with all the with all the offensive buffs. So uh, after the I shot it a bit and it had thirteen wounds and through the three up invo and through the neg one damage I got fifteen or so damage onto it and I was like cool as long as he doesn't roll more than two feel no pains I'm good. Um, he rolls five feel no pains which takes fifteen damage to five damage because every time he heal he rolls a six he heals. So the the math on that feel no pain is amazing. So there, there'll be times where that Lord of Change can actually just be a big distraction. Um 
but he can easily take secondaries like engage on all fronts, which he did against me. He can easily take, um, you know, the mission specific ones that allow you to, uh, that, that you need to, um, I guess, do actions on objectives and hold other objectives. He's really good at that. Um, yeah, so, and he can, he can easily, easily take while we stand we fight on his three big characters because if you're killing them, you're not killing the beasts that are running your army over. So I love this list. It's it's awesome. <laughs> but, but it makes me, uh, you know, ask a question because, okay, clearly this is like the second GT now that is yeah. being won by demons yeah. and it's a different list. So, yes. like, the first list was, I think, like, keeper of, Keepers of Secrets all over the place, Seleski yeah. and, and all that jazz. Now, here mm -hmm. we have mainly Nurgle with a little twist from Blood Letters and so on. So different. Mm. Does that imply, because it makes me think, like, do you think that this, this, this list did so well because it was so surprising? Or did it do so well because the units in it are actually so good? So I think um, with ninth, there's there's a lot of things you can control in your own turn with movement and holding ground and things like that. But the fact that you've got to go all around the clock through your opponent's turn before you start scoring in your turn means whatever you can kind of control in your opponent's turn is very important. So things that Nurgle demons have going for them is their inherent toughness, you know, being able to debuff opponent shooting with Miasma, things like that, you know, having things that don't die easily is very important. But on top of that, having a unit that can just heroic intervene like Beast can is, is incredible because you can't take the objective off them if you can't kill them. Like you, you drop onto it, cool, they're heroic and they kill you. So that's really important. What Slanesh demons have is the ability to lock things in combat, to be able to fight first, you know, things like that, to stop your opponent doing their natural play to naturally shift you off. And I think that's how those two armies get a lot of strength. They they stop your opponent playing their own game, essentially, you know, with their durability, with their tricks. So, um, look, I, I, I think part of it may be a surprise. Um, but in saying that, a lot of the players at this event knew that Dan would be bringing this list. <laughs> and a lot of the top players that Dan plays with had to play him <laughs> to, to get through him for this tournament. And they couldn't beat him. So, um, you know, I think there's some very, very strong potential in these demon lists. And it's great to see the, these exalted demons are, are no joke, guys. They're no joke. Yeah, absolutely. Edward, in, in, in your text about this tournament, in your summary, you mentioned, and that's a valid point, I think, that... Uh, the list included also representatives, so to say, from the least effective of the Chaos Gods, meaning Corn, right? So, so there were the blood letters as well, as you rightfully observed. What do you think was their role in the list? Oh, I think that good move by Dan having them, them and the Flamers. Um, it's going to be very, very easy to get distracted when you're facing this type of army on the table when you're looking at an exalted great unclean one um a lord of change that's all but unkillable um all these beasts of nurgle if you're still if you get too focused on how you're going to take the objectives and how you're going to kill these big monsters uh 15 20 blood letters however big someone wants to make the bomb they can still kill things like their ability to just run through a unit especially space marines um with their ap 
has not gone away. So you have to really be mindful um, as you're attacking this army to know that that's still in their back pocket and uh, kind of like uh, Eric's list with the punch from the Broodlords and the Acolytes, just having that option of the blood letters is just an extra piece that's always got to be in the back of your opponent's mind for them to worry about, which makes it really strong. Yeah, that's it. And it's yep. it's a totally it's I was gonna say it's a totally different stat line to something like Beast and the Great Unclean One and the Exalted um, you know, Lord of Change. So if you've brought the tools to the game to kill those big things, have you brought the tools to deal with twenty bloodletters? Like it makes your opponent ask that question. And if you have, are you gonna spread out and reach out like Edward said? And are you gonna be vulnerable to that hit? But on top of that, it just adds another element of board control in the sense that there's obsec there. So if the beasts are having trouble of punching out against something that's objective secured, like you've got a bloodletter brick, you've got a plague bearer unit that we haven't even touched on because there's so much stuff in the list, but there's a plague bearer unit as well, and there's Nurgling. So there is that hidden obsec that can, like against the game against me, he pushed forward with the beasts and then he crept the Nurgling slowly onto the objectives just so he had some hold there. Because it's then it's like, okay, what do you do? Kill the Nurglings? No, there's 18 beasts down my throat. So um yeah it's still got those sneaky elements of obsec which are really really nice and the bloodletters fill that role perfectly they're that explosive damage and obsec together yeah and on top of that i would say because actually the bloodletter bomb is something that i uh i used to see a lot in the polish meta in like the last year and i think people choose bloodletters for a bunch of reasons one of them being yeah obsec as you said two AP and damage, because I think they can get up to two damage on the charge, if I'm not mistaken. Or uh, yeah. Two damage on the roll, win roll of a six, yeah. Oh yeah, that, sorry. And then there is another thing, you can use the stratagem to actually charge with 3d6. Yes. So you really have to be unlucky, although I've seen that happen, you really have to be unlucky <laughs> not to make that charge. So so yeah, so so it, it's, it's a really a glass cannon uh, in that list that, you know, can punch through pretty much everything if they get that charge off uh, yeah. but usually they do usually they do and it's 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 painful to see how they grind through your units simply yeah um one thing i think that is a, a cherry on top uh, i can say i remember listening to uh the normal blogs before the event and you were going through that list and you said kudos to dan for bringing guo so yeah great on clean one yeah and yeah i Great unclean one, I think, is 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 my favorite of the greater demons, just because of the model. No matter which yeah. which edition, the model is always great. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think it also has this one feature, the 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 one with the bell. I think this is what Dan brought, right? The one with the yeah. bell that that can bring back beasts, but it can also bring back other Nurgle stuff. Uh, yeah. From from what I uh, read, so yes. if you build your list correctly, I mean correctly, if you build your list um, for that, they can even bring back other demons, including mythic blight haulers. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep. <laughs> so, that's, so that's a mental kind of combo, I would say. Yeah, and here's the thing, right? Like, if you want to stop your opponent doing that, what are you going to do? Try and kill the great unclean one? Like, good luck. <laughs> Like, if you're killing him, you may as well be killing... Because let's say Max, he brings back five beasts in the whole game, right? Is it easier to kill five beasts or him? Probably easier to kill five beasts. So, like, any shots that you're putting onto the Great Unclean One just for the sake of um, 
just for the sake of stopping him bringing the beast back is probably not the best idea. You may as well just blow through like, you know, the, the units. The, the other thing is I believe you can use a, a stratagem to bring back the beast. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think you can use grandfather's blessing. I might have to check that, but there are other ways to bring them back, which is cool. In the particular list, uh, Dan equipped his great unclean one with fleshy abundance, so he's got a D3 yes. heal through psychic power every turn. That'd be it. So that's yep. just... Ugh, ugh. <laughs> yeah, you really have to yeah. invest a lot to actually try to bring it down, and probably that is the, the last of the things that you want to do anyway, because there are yeah. so many things on the table that, that are more important in that particular moment. You're not going yep. to shoot something you know, huge, heavy, slow-moving in the back lines of your opponent when you have so much in your face right now. Um, plus the Nurglings that start anywhere on the table that is nine inches away. So you you pretty much start with a, with a handicap because he's already there with what is supposed to be a slow army. <laughs> and yeah, deal with it. So yeah, fantastic list. Uh, no wonder that it won. I'm really happy that because I remember in eight, uh, people used to say that this is one of the worst codexes out there. Then I think, <laughs> well, yeah, it is a lot. But, uh, you know, the only list or the only two lists that I heard that used to work for demons back then was either uh, uh, Bear spam or mm -hmm. Brimstone spam. Uh, mm -hmm. Two of which, you know, the Polish players took to the ETCs. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, I remember both uh, Tiffles, so one of the representatives, and then Dave, the other one. They said they were they were dying inside when playing those lists. So, yeah. I think um, demons had potential to be quite good for a lot of eighth. The issue, like with a lot of factions, is when the marine codexes and supplements came out. Demons had a lot of trouble keeping up. Um, which is a which is a shame, you know, because um, I, I see demons as one of the most well-rounded factions because there's so many options that you have, and it's it's really I think it's it's good to see them being strong because it's it's an army with a high skill ceiling. Like we talk about how strong Dan's list is, but you can still potato this list and not play it properly. So there still are ways to mess it up. So and and typically with demons with different elements with the psychic heavy army, it, it is a high skill cap. So it is always good to see them doing well because it takes you know it takes a brain to play them. So, Denise, was this event a part of any Australian circuit or anything like that? Or was it a standalone event? Um, well, at the start of the year, we were looking at, um, you know, a circuit that uh, Down Under Pairings was putting together. The, um, you know, there was an Australian circuit going on. But with, you know, the COVID issues coming up, we that kind of fell on its head. Um, we're trying to run a Masters event at the end of the year. Well, we, I mean, our state, not us particularly. And the Masters event is taking the results of a lot of um, tournaments and compiling them and selecting like a top 16 to play at the Masters. So this event did qualify for that. Um, but otherwise, there was no, um, you know, no no circuit it's really part of or anything. But we, we do plan on running, uh, running some more events more regularly. You know, we've got a, a little RTT coming up in a couple of weeks and we like to, we'd like to run them every couple of months. Um, so yeah, I guess you'll see more more local coverage from us as well. Right, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. So, Edward, can you tell us briefly, if you know, is there any specific process that, or you know, reasoning or or thinking that goes into selecting who will represent the US at tournaments like the ETC or yeah, WTC, 
or any other team tournament? Is it just top guys from the ITC circuit, or is there something more to it? Uh, last year and years previous, I guess, there's typically a team captain that, I, to be honest with you, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you how he gets selected. Um, but recent years, I believe uh, uh, Stephen Four and Sean Naden usually uh, coordinate a lot of uh, who's on the team. Um, and they generally uh, look at it from the standpoint of like uh, who they think's going to work well with them. Um, a lot of times it's, you know, members of their particular um, maybe teams or regions. Uh, I think this year they were planning on reaching a little bit outside that. Like, I believe uh, Siegler was going to be on the team, uh, things yeah. like that. But I know so you have there's... like local, sorry, you have something. Right. I mean, I, I, I listened to what was a chapter tactics, I think, uh, one of the last episodes of chapter tactics, they mentioned something about ITC teams and revamping that system or ideas for revamping that system. So uh, what there are players grouping up together, creating teams and, and competing as teams. So did I understand that correctly? Yeah, so the ITC teams, as far as those go, are more a collection of um, generally regional players. Um, that it's more a pool of their collective results at different events. Um, so very similar to the ITC individual rankings. Um, but the team that they represent gets points um, based on each individual's uh, placing in a tournament. So if the individuals in a team do better at an event, the team gets more points. Um, it's not necessarily um, based around actual team events. Um, which here we have the ATC that happens in Tennessee annually. Um, generally, the only really big team event that happens, um, most of the ITC teams are more based along that kind of end-of-year prize, whatever being right. the prestigious best team in ITC, as it were. Okay. And, Denise, what about Australia? Um, do you have many team events? Because just to give you yeah. context to that question, in Poland... Um, I mentioned that to Edward before we went live. Um, we have occasionally team tournaments that um, help the, you know, the, the the captain of the national team. They help select potential candidates or act the actual candidates for the national team. And then we have something that you also mentioned you have in Australia, which is Polish uh, team tournaments which yeah. brings around 100 last time i definitely we organized it in in the place where i live so we had i don't know 130 people or something like that close to that number yeah so uh yeah this was like the proving grounds for many candidates for the national team so yeah. in poland it looks like uh, the entire country pretty much is working towards the success of the national team so the the, the events are organized with WTC rules pack so that everyone plays what the WTC plays um, and then you know candidates follow the national team they go to events all around the country to show themselves present themselves and then hopefully get selected for the national team plus the league if you reach top 10 I think top three places from the league from the like Polish circuit let's call it uh, top three players from that 
get selected for the national team as well. So mm. does in Australia, does it also revolve around the national team or is the national team sort of the byproduct of what happens throughout the year? So, yeah, I think um, I think with with not just in 40K, but in any sport, um, there's a big difference between a team of champions and a champion team. And I think there's a big difference between as well singles 40K and team 40K. That's not very apparent, you know, if you're just looking at it that way. But in teams 40K, you don't just have the game on the table. You have, you know, the matchups process. You've got table selection. You've got getting your team out of the sticky situations when it's bad and capitalizing on situations that are good. So in order for that to happen, you don't just need good 40K players. You need people that can communicate well with one another. You need players that gel well as a team and can keep people, you know, in good spirits when it's going bad. And at the end of the day, you know, people need to get along. And I think what Australia has done is we we don't really select just the top 10 or top eight or whatever from from the ITC or our rankings. We we have in the last few years, we've had a nominated captain and a couple of players that join on from the previous year and they individually select those remaining players. And as that player pool in the team gets bigger, so it goes to three to four to five those players then vote on the next players from results and and um you know it's it's easy i think to to criticize a system if i bring the american selection um process in it's sometimes easy to criticize a system saying oh we're just inviting our friends into this but we have to understand that the team needs to function and we've had situations in australia like going on to your first part of your question like we've um in australia like we'd play about three to four team events a year so we'd have the australian team championships run by down under pairings which is a state versus state championships um people who are luckily enough lucky enough to get selected for that play for that um there is a team down in new south wales called overwatch and they run two team tournaments a year which are four-man tournaments um which are awesome fun and recently in Brisbane, one of our good friends, James Fuller of the Normal Works, has been running a Brisbane team tournament. So, you know, we were lucky enough to get four in a calendar year, which is which is awesome. But um, those team events are kind of the the gateway to, like you said, with Poland, promoting that kind of Team 40K feel and trying to get as much experience for the national team as we can. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I think I if, if I was to make the call, I mean, I don't think just selecting a top eight is good enough. I think the team needs to function as a team more than anything. Very well said. So, yeah, I'm curious to see what happens with the, uh, the Polish national team next year, because uh, this year the, the, the team or the, the, the bunch that will be selecting representatives, uh, they said up front that they are looking with people, you know, uh, sorry, we're looking for people with balls of steel who are willing to sacrifice everything to demolish their opponents. And so, like, you know, that's serious business. There's no no joking about it. And if you set um, the expectation high, people will come and meet it, right? Like, yeah, exactly. So so I'm really, really, really curious where, where this takes us. Um, yeah. But I guess we'll find out next year. So, yeah, about that is... Do you think we will see Team Australia at the next WTC whenever it happens? I can guarantee you wholeheartedly that Team Australia will be at the next WTC. <laughs> will you so, be on the um, So at the moment, I was selected as the head coach um, for Australia. Ooh, so, so I would like to retain that position, but um, it, it looks like, you know, it, it'll be all up in the air. We don't know yet. I, I would love to come over as a coach because um, I've had experience uh, coaching sporting teams. I've had experience, um, you know, like helping our little Warhammer team out. And I love it. Like the coaching is just another side of it that, like I said, you don't see it in singles play, um, but coaching a team and, and seeing them succeed and helping them succeed is so much fun. So I'd love to, but it will 
depends on how it pans out. Um, like I said, I, I say this a lot. I'm I'm not good enough to play on the team yet. Maybe one day, maybe one day. But um, I'd I'd love to coach. That'd be great. Okay, so fingers crossed that you you, you get yeah. to do that then. Uh, yeah. Right, guys. I think we'll we're we we're, we're slowly reaching the end of the episode. So. Is there anything that you would like to plug or anyone that you would like to recommend or at least say why my listeners should be your listeners or readers <laughs> as well? Edward, I've been talking a lot. I'll let you go, man. I'll let you go first. Awesome. So, yeah, uh, like we got to at the beginning, adaptivesubroutinesgaming.com, um, brand new long-form written site. Um as kind of restrictions in my area ease up, um, I do plan to transition not just to sort of uh, rules and list analysis, but uh, into written battle reports and things like that as I can get games in. Uh, kind of talked about it briefly before, but we still only 10 people indoor events where I'm at, so not a lot of gaming happening, but uh, I definitely plan to transition into Uh, battle reports, uh, more of the hobby side kind of progress with my armies as I'm building them. Um, and of course, uh, tournament coverage and analysis of rules as they come out. Gonna just keep it coming now that uh, people are enjoying it. Yeah, and as I said, as, as I said at some point um, earlier, really knowledgeable guy behind those articles. So make sure that you head onto that website and you give it a chance because uh, the first articles that I read really I, when i started i couldn't stop reading so um yeah go there check it out you won't regret it Denis? um yeah so like i said at the start i'm part of the normal blokes 40k podcast um our overarching goal is to improve the competitive 40k experience so for for players who are both you know novices or experienced in competitive 40k um we talk about how you can you know improve your game you know on top of having fun having more fun at the table um we also cover you know, events in our local scene and internationally. We um, occasionally talk about tactics. We occasionally talk about list builds. We occasionally talk about aspects of play that can make you a better player. Um, on our show, we've got Liam Hackett, who's part of the Australian WTC team. Um, you'll probably have heard of him for his Orcs or on, you know, Down Under, Art of War for his fabulous bio list, which is ridiculous. Um, we got Jordan Bennett, who's one of the strongest Blood Angels player in our, players in our meta. And we got Luke Pierce, who's one of the, at the moment, one of the better GK Grey Knight players in our meta. So, um, you know, we've, we've got a bit of experience from um, from those guys. Um, and uh, we've been recording for a couple of years. So find us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. And uh, look us up on Facebook as uh, the Normal Blokes 40K podcast. But uh, thanks so much, Tom, for, for having us on. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of pleasure for me as well. So, yeah, cheers, guys. And uh, hopefully I'll get to invite you one more time. Ah, anytime, mate. Yeah, absolutely, awesome. man. Awesome. Thank you. So, yeah, guys, uh, make sure you uh, visit those websites. You check my guests on their websites, Spotify, YouTube, all the other podcasting media that you can find. Also, make sure that you subscribe to uh, our channel. You leave a like, you comment, because I'm really keen to read your comments. And then, yeah, I guess that's it. Until next time. See you guys. Take it easy. <laughs>